You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. Welcome to week two. Today's teaching is on Exodus chapters one and two. Thanks for joining us. Okay, let's get started. I'm Chris Cox, if you don't know me. Christy said last week that three of us are chairing off the teaching. So Julie will be up here next week, and then you get Christy again, and we'll just keep rotating like that. So you know what weeks you really want to be here? (laughs) I I don't want to know, okay. Um, And you've had a chance to to look at the workbook and try out the homework. And um, I met Molly on the way to the restroom. She said, we have a lot of questions. I I hope you're going to answer them all. Like, I hope so too. (laughs) If not, catch me after class because the committee's done a lot of studying on this. I've got answers we don't have time for. But all the lessons are going to follow that same three-step pattern that we really hope becomes your rhythm, not just here, but when you study on your own after this. Observation. You really look at the text to see what it says. And this time, be really careful to see what it doesn't say, because you've probably picked up ideas from other places. How many of you have seen Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments? Okay, how about Prince of Egypt? Okay, how about a Sunday school lesson on Moses, right? Okay, so you're going to have to just don't let those creep into the text. Try to see what it says. That's really hard for something that you may have spent years um, putting pictures in your mind. Okay, so after observation comes interpretation, you work to understand the meaning. And we, we engage our minds, but we also ask the Holy Spirit to open our hearts and minds to understand truth. Christy mentioned that little prayer at the beginning of each section. It's just tiny, but don't skip it. That might be the most important part of the lesson, that that you ask the Holy Spirit, invite him to work with you as you study. And then comes application, so the text intersects with our daily lives. We're not just acquiring information, but we want a growing intimacy with God that's going to transform our lives. That's the goal. And don't think that just because these are familiar chapters, there's nothing new for you. The Spirit can illuminate new truths to you every time you study a passage. If you live to be 120 like Moses did, every time you look, he can show you new truths. So don't just rush over it and go, I know all this. You know, God has depths that you can plumb for the rest of your life. So we're going to look at our history in Exodus, and I want to emphasize that it's important that we see it. This is history. Our faith isn't just a philosophy or a mind game. It's grounded in the historical acts of the God who created the world, who governed the rise and fall of nations, who's bringing history to his intended culmination. And, and this, is, this is important because that's the foundation for us. The, in, in Exodus, we're talking about bringing God's people out of Egypt. That phrase, out of Egypt, is used 114 times in the Old Testament outside the book of Exodus. That's a really important part of their history. And there's numerous references to the crossing the Red Sea, to being fed in the desert. So this is really the foundation for the Israelite nation and its history. And it's our foundation too. So when you're aligning with God, you're being connected to the foundational historical reality of the world we live in. You're not just adopting a philosophy of life. 
So we need to see this is our history, and it's not just the history of the Jewish nation, okay? Your salvation did not begin when Jesus was born on Christmas. This is us. This is God's story. Christy did that last week beautifully. This is God's story from beginning to end. The New Testament says we're the children of Abraham, and we're heirs of his promises. So that's where the story picks up. Remember, in Genesis, God made a covenant with Abraham. He promised him first a son, and then he promised him a multitude of descendants, and then he promised that those descendants would have the land of Canaan for their own. He promised to make them a great nation and to bless the whole earth through them. But by the end of Genesis, the only result that we've seen is the son, right? Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. They sold their brother Joseph into slavery. But he rose to power in Egypt, and he saved the whole family when famine hit the land because they moved to Egypt under his protection. So now when Exodus picks up there, it's about 300 years after those events. Um, and they're still there, but Joseph died a long time ago, and so did their favored people status in Egypt. They're laboring for Pharaoh now. But that was part of God's promise, too. Jenny and I have not practiced this, but we're going to be great. So first, oh, and for those of you who are listening online, I'm going to give clear verse references, I trust, for everything that's projected so you'll know what we're doing. I, we're also going to, I believe, post the PowerPoint online. There'll be a tab that says additional resources. So if you guys want to go back and look at it. So um, Genesis 15, 13 to 14. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So that was one of the promises too, not one of the nicer ones, right? How many of you would build a great nation that way? Sojourners, servants, afflicted, that doesn't sound like a good beginning. But neither did choosing Abraham, an old man with a barren wife. That's how God worked it. How come we expect that God's work in our life is going to be clear and straightforward and understandable? Do you expect that? Do you, we don't see that in Scripture. That just isn't the way God has ever worked. And yet I want it to be different for me. So... Yeah, don't you? You're just like me. We keep going, God, why, are, why can't you? Well, he never did. He, always, he was always different. So at the start of Exodus, God's promise of servitude has been kept. They don't have the promised land of Canaan. They're not a great nation. But they have one other promise. Um, Exodus 1-7 says, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly, there we are, then grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. They've got the beginning of the promised multitudes, right? Look at those piled up verbs. Fruitful, multiplied, exceedingly strong, filled, okay? That's a lot of babies. And this is also the first time they're called a people, not just a family, but we're a people now. So you were asked to compare this with Genesis 1, um, which is going to come. There it is. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill. Notice that even, it's even got three of the same verbs in there, okay? The, God's creation mandate is being fulfilled. And that was great for the Israelites, but it was a problem for Pharaoh. Because the Israelites lived in Goshen. There's a map coming. 
Um, they there were a lot of people there who had refugee there f because of famine. Um, so you can see Goshen on the map in the northeast corner of Egypt. And all the people who refugeed intended to stay near the border. Um, and so about a third of the population in that area was actually Asian, that had come in from Asia. So here's what had Pharaoh worried. Um, you can see some of the other nations, the Philistines, the Hittites, the Syrians, Babylonians. These are the people that uh, might come into conflict with Egypt. And if they're going to invade Egypt, they're going to come into that northeast corner. They're not going to march the armies across the desert. Only God does that, right? <laughs> no one else is going to. So that's the area that um, is full of foreigners. If an invading army comes through there, the foreigners are going to rise up and join them, right? Do you remember from history class during World War II, we rounded up Japanese immigrants and forced them into internment camps? because we were afraid of what they might do, that they might support. This is the very same deal. We've got foreigners in our midst. How are we going to? We weren't any better than Pharaoh in a lot of ways. Okay, So his solution was to weaken the Hebrews as much as possible. So Exodus 1, 10 to 11 says, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us. So they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Python and Ramses. So in other words, let's work them to death, okay? Get some good out of them and subdue them at the same time. So look at the map again. We're not sure of the, where these two cities were located. They're, the red dots are probably where the, they might have been. Um, they're in your workbook also. Probably these were military depots to store supplies so that if the Egyptian army had to march out against invaders or if they marched out to conquer territory, there would be supplies there. So this part of the country is really heavily fortified and guarded. Remember that for later because that's going to come into play later again. So words like heavy burdens, oppression, ruthless, bitter, hard service, that's the kind of words that are used, describes how they were treated. But in the midst of that, they were growing so fast that it scared Pharaoh and the Egyptians. I wonder if it looked supernatural to them, because it was. It was God's blessing and God's favor, and it wasn't something that humanly would happen. So Pharaoh increased the pressure with plan B. That's Exodus 1, 15 to 16. He called in the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua, and said, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him, but if it's a daughter, she shall live. How, how brutal would that be? Someone at my table said, it would be terrible to be pregnant. wonder if you can have a girl or a boy and what's going to happen. And these are the only two people mentioned by name in this chapter. They get special attention. But they didn't follow Pharaoh's orders. They refused to kill the baby boys. And they went back to Pharaoh and said, well, we just can't get to the mothers in time. So you were asked, was it wrong to lie to Pharaoh? Um, and I'm not going to give you a straight yes or no. It, it, in the text, God apparently blessed them for what they did. So he gave them families. I wonder, too, what would have happened if they'd gone back and said, you know, our God forbid us to do this. Would he have listened to that? So I, I, don't, I don't have an answer for you. But the text also says two different places that they feared God. That guided their answer. What did they know about God? What scriptures did they have? Right, Moses isn't born yet. Moses hadn't written the Pentateuch yet. 
There were probably very few written accounts. The Hebrews were probably mostly illiterate. They would have had handed down oral traditions of what God had done for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. That's not much of a foundation to stand up and defy Pharaoh. When you compare that with the incredible wealth of information that we have about God, it seems like we should be able to stand up to anything in our culture, right? So the frustrated Pharaoh expands to plan C, um, which is Exodus 122. Everybody throws baby boys in the Nile, and not just the midwives, but everyone. Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that's born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile. That would be a terrible time to be a mom. We don't know how many babies were killed. The record just stops there and moves to focus on Moses' parents. And Moses' parents, we're only told that they're from the tribe of Levi, which is later going to be set apart as a special tribe for the worship of God. It isn't until chapter 6 that you find out their names. They're Amram and Jochebed. But look what's said about baby Moses in Exodus 2.2 says he was a fine child. The woman saw that he was a fine child. Literally that phrase is she saw that he was good. And that is the same phrase that you find over and over in Genesis 1. God created something and it was good and he saw that it was good. Something else and he saw that it was good. Over and over you see that. What's really interesting too is that both New Testament passages that mention Moses as a baby also say something about how he looked. Um, Peter in Acts 7.20, at this time Moses was born, he was beautiful in God's sight. And the writer of Hebrews in 11.23, by faith Moses when he was born was hidden because they saw that the child was beautiful. All three passages have to comment. How, how beautiful can a newborn baby be, right? Have you, you've seen a few? So we don't, I, and I, when you see something repeated three times, that means it's significant. Take note of it. But I can't tell you exactly what was going on here. Did God's call, like, shine through that people could see it? Was it discernment on the part of his parents? Notice Hebrews says, his parents hid him by faith. It wasn't just desperation to save the child. They believed God wanted them to do this, and they did it. So in a sense, Moses' mother did put him in the Nile, right? She just made sure that he was going to float. And the word used in the text there for basket is actually a, a a loan word from Egyptian. And the only other place it's used is in talking about the ark earlier in Genesis. And it means box or chest, So both times you have a floating box that was used to rescue somebody. Um, In Exodus 2.5, so to to continue the story, oh, she's there. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, okay? This is not like taking a bath bathe, probably. She was going down for some sort of ritual cleansing. um, And... Probably she went at a regular time and at a regular place. We, we, the, okay, the pictures are of this river. Buddy, no, I don't think she slid down a muddy riverbank. There, this is, this, she's too important for that. There would have been a time and a place that she went. Um, later on, you'll see that Moses meets the Pharaoh. He knows when and where to meet him in the morning at the river when he's performing whatever it is they did. So probably it wasn't, that hard to know when and where to find Pharaoh's daughter. And this was planned. It wasn't a total accident. Big sister hid in the reeds. 
The only sister mentioned in Exodus is Miriam, so we're going to assume that this is Miriam. Um, so they probably had a good idea what was going to happen, and they just nestled the basket in the reeds off to the side of this area so that it wouldn't float away before the princess got there. It doesn't say who Pharaoh's daughter is. Pharaoh's usually had multiple wives, so he would have had a lot of sons and daughters. But the text says, the daughter of Pharaoh. So it sounds like maybe she is the daughter of his primary wife. She had servants of her own, so she was important. Um, she defied the Pharaoh. Who would dare to do that? Although you notice she didn't take the baby home in front of everybody. She sent him off to be taken care of. So she didn't have to defy anyone right away. Um, Hebrew tradition says that she was the daughter of Pharaoh's primary wife and that she was actually the heir to the throne, which would have put Moses in line. Um, there was a Pharaoh in this general time period who had only one child, a daughter, and she was his heir. But the text doesn't say that. Um, we, we just don't know, so we have to leave it there. So when Miriam saw that the baby was safe, she ran and got her mother for a wet nurse. We don't know how long Moses lived with his birth family. 2.10 says, when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. This is um, probably Jochebed, brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. Boys were weaned at about two or three years old, so he was undoubtedly at least that old. But the when, she grew, when he grew older phrase leaves room for him to be several years old, maybe early elementary. So he's not just a kid. Did he grow up knowing that he was a Hebrew, learning the stories about God? It sounds like it, but we just don't know. She, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him formally at that time, and that's where the name change comes in. He is now formally... Her, her son. She gives him a new name. The name Moses may be a play on words. It's not clear because Moses in Egyptian sounds like the word for son and in Hebrew it sounds like the word for draw out of. And she mentions, I drew him out of the water. So it would have been a good name in both languages. A good bicultural name. Exodus is pretty silent about the next few years. I mean, someone was asking, like, what happened then? We don't know. But um, Stephen, in Acts 7.22, fills us in a little bit. He says, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. There he is. Okay. Um, Egyptian schooling for high-ranking men was the best in the world at that time. It was famous all over the world. Other rulers would send their sons to be educated in Egypt to get that kind of training. So Moses probably studied foreign languages, hieroglyphics, other scripts, law and administration, public speaking, all of those things. And with an education like that, he probably moved into a position in the administration and um, had an important job. Josephus, if you know of him, he's a first century historian. He says that Moses actually led a military campaign. Well, there again, we can't verify that, but it seems like he would have had an important position with that kind of training, especially since Stephen also says that he was powerful. So now look at Exodus 2.11 and the parallel in Acts 7.23. When Moses had grown up, and um, Acts says that he was 40, he went out to his people. And at that point, he knew he belonged to the Hebrews, and he identified with them as his people. They're his people and his brothers so much that he got angry, and he killed this Egyptian who was beating a Hebrew. And the next day finds him back with the Hebrews, breaking up a fight um, in Exodus 2.14. And the man says to him, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? 
So he was acting very high-handed. He must have acted like he was in the authority. Um, Stephen gives us an interesting insight there, Acts 7.25. You read these passages. He supposed his brothers would understand. It's coming. He thought, he thought they'd get it, that he's there to save them. Why do you th- what would make him think that? Why would they see him as their deliverer? There's no burning bush, okay? We don't have any record of God speaking to him. Did he know that the 400-year period of slavery was almost up? Did they know? He undoubtedly knew the stories of his ancestors. And think about it. Almost 400 years earlier, a Hebrew slave, Joseph, had been elevated to this high position in Egypt and used to rescue his family. Okay, now comes along another incredible instance where a Hebrew slave actually gets adopted into the royal family and it's time for, for the Hebrews to leave Egypt. I, I think that Moses was, knew, knew that in the back of his head. Like, how can, this is not a coincidence. I'm following in Joseph's footsteps. I'm going to rescue my people. But they didn't see it. At that time, though, he really is casting his lot with the Israelites. He's abandoned his Egyptian heritage. Hebrews 11:24 says, ah, they're there. Um, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And it sounds like maybe there was a lot of privilege if he gave up wealth and pleasures and position to cast his lot with the with the Hebrews. He was all in. It didn't matter what it cost. But because he murdered the Egyptian, he had to, he had to leave the country. So how do you think Moses felt right now about his mission? He hadn't helped his people yet, and now he can't even go near them, right? He's exiled. Do you think he wondered if he'd been mistaken about God's plan? He seemed qualified for the job, the best education and training available, and he had this strong sense of justice and compassion for the mistreated, both here and you see it later when he rescues, rescues Rule's daughters. He thought it was his time. Have you ever been in that position? You were sure God wanted you to do something, but it didn't work out. It's possible you were mistaken. It's also possible you just didn't have the maturity to carry it out yet. And God had more lessons for you. Moses blew it, but God wasn't done with him. Or maybe you were stalled because it wasn't God's time. It maybe seemed obvious to Moses. He was in his prime at age 40. Now we'll go for it, right? Have you ever been sure the time was right? This is, this is the moment. That, you know, I've done that. That's my life story. Now, God, and it didn't happen. Or I thought how it should work out, and God did it differently. Trust in God does not come from understanding his plans. It comes from knowing his character. Or maybe you have an adult child who seems to have blown it. Or if you're younger, a sibling, a friend who's gone the wrong way. Just imagine being Moses' mother or his big sister Miriam and watching this man of incredible promise walk off across the desert. He's an exile, a fugitive, a murderer. That would be heartbreaking, right? So maybe you've had that kind of heartbreak. But it wasn't the end for Moses. So don't ever underestimate God's ability to turn a person around and don't ever stop praying whatever situation you're in. Can I get a drink without... Mm -hmm without okay maybe you have a young child who's difficult to parent we were talking about that at our table today has some really strong character qualities 
The very things that make it difficult might be strengths later on. Moses' passion for justice and concern um, for people who are oppressed got him in trouble, but later on that would have been assets as he tried to lead his people. He just needed to, some maturity behind it. I had a daughter like that. When she was little, it was full speed ahead. Strong emotions, strong will, strong actions. Couldn't hardly keep up with her. Some of you knew her. I used to say, I'm the mother, she's the child, right? You've been there? When she could hardly talk from the back seat, she would scream, go, 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 when the car stopped at a red light. And when she was two and she understood that we were headed overseas as missionaries, she said, well, you'll have to go without me because I'm not going. You can just leave me here. Like, I think not. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I won't tell you about some of the stories when she's older because they're coming back to the States in a few months and she would be embarrassed. But you can ask her yourself. But as she grew and matured, those same, that rocket-propelled personality that pushed all the boundaries emerged as a leader and as a trailblazer. So now for the last nine years, she and her husband and children have been on the other side of the world doing development work in a place that's difficult to get into and really hard to stick with. I wish I could have seen that when I was wrestling with all those two-year-old tantrums. So if you've got something like that in your house, don't give up. Ask God to show you how that things that are issues today could be assets tomorrow. And just keep that long view perspective. So let's go back to Moses. Rule gave him a home in Midian. He's called the priest of Midian. Rule means friend of God. Was he a follower of the one true God? Maybe. We have the example of Melchizedek in Genesis 14. Moses married Rule's daughter. And he named his first son Gershom. That means stranger or exile. So how was Moses feeling right then? He belonged to two cultures. He was exiled from both of them. He's living in a third. He, he probably felt really like a stranger. And he would have felt estranged from his calling to rescue his people. I doubt his Egyptian education had courses in desert survival and the care and feeding of sheep, right? He's totally out over his head, learning again and starting at the very bottom. But think of this. His Egyptian education prepared him as a leader and as an administrator and also enabled him to write the Pentateuch. And 40 years in the desert gave him skills that the other Israelites wouldn't have, as well as giving him character training. So actually, he had the perfect preparation for what God wanted him to do. It just wasn't what he was expecting, and it wasn't much fun to live through. These events in Exodus are the defining moments for the nation of Israel. They're the greatest acts of deliverance that God performed in the Old Testament. And we call this a type. It's a foreshadowing of a greater fulfillment that's to come. So the Exodus events as a whole foreshadow what Jesus is going to do in delivering us from the bondage of sin um, in the New Testament. And you see that referenced over and over again in the New Testament, the, the allusion to um, the Exodus events and our being compared to our salvation. And Moses as a person is a type of Christ. There are a lot of parallels between Moses as the deliverer of his people in the Old Testament and Jesus as our true ultimate savior in the New Testament. So be watching for them. You, should, you could see some of those in this lesson. Think about it. Both of them were threatened as infants. They were ordered killed 
by the decree of a ruler who was trying to protect his own power and stop God's plan. It didn't work in either case. He miraculously delivered them. Both of them were initially rejected by the people they came to save. That would be heartbreaking too. So keep an eye out for more parallels as, because there are a lot of parallels here. You can't understand the Old Testament or the New Testament if you don't understand what's going on in Exodus. So chapter 2 ends with, meanwhile, back in Egypt, right? We go back to the, the Israelites in Egypt. Um, and I don't have, oh, 223 to 25. The king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned, cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. He saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is the first time God is mentioned. Look at all those verbs. Do you think the Israelites felt like God had been hearing and remembering and seeing and knowing? You think they felt like he had forgotten his covenant? Where is he? Why would he wait so long and let it be so hard? Have you ever asked? I've asked God that. God, why are you taking so long and why is it so hard? Same God. I don't think it's wrong to groan and cry out for help. I've done a lot of that. You just have to cry out to God and keep facing him. But in all this, we're assured that God knew that he had not forgotten. I love it that it ends on that phrase because that's a special phrase for me. People who spend much time with me comment on one thing. I say, they're shaking their heads over and over. God knows. Um, when I'm disappointed, when I'm frustrated, when I'm bewildered, when I'm encouraging someone else, God knows. I've come to understand that I don't need to understand everything I don't have to know what God is doing. I just need to know God, and he knows. I said earlier, trust in God doesn't come from understanding his plans. It comes from knowing his character. So when you get to those parts in your homework that ask, what am I learning about God, what he's like, don't skip them. That's really essential because it's knowing God that's going to be the foundation. If you know who God is, how he cares for you, the fact that he hears and sees and remembers that God knows, that is an absolutely solid foundation to build on. So keep accumulating those little bits and building that foundation. That's why we're studying together like this. We're building a solid foundation. Next week, when Julie's up here, we'll see God break in and do some powerful things in the Exodus story. And we will go, yeah, God, it's about time, right? And he'll say, no, in my perfect time. It's always in his perfect time. So don't miss it. So do your homework again and come back next week. And let's pray to close. Father, we just come to you humbly knowing that we don't understand and we don't always like what you're doing. But we just commit ourselves to you. Teach us who you are. Help us to know you so clearly and fully that we can trust you when life is difficult when it doesn't go the way we think it should. Help us to have the long picture knowing that you are still remembering, that you are still working things out, and that we haven't seen the end yet. So thank you for this time together, and we pray that we'll be able to come back again next week. In Jesus' name, amen.